Hello, welcome to the Theology Pugcast. And yes, what you hear in the background is piped in music to a real pub because we are live. We are live back here in uh, Manchester, Connecticut, and the Artisanal Burger Place. What is what is the actual name of this place? Artisanal. Uh, artisanal. Thank you for the correction. Artisanal Burger Company, which I just uh, saw just like two weeks ago, was rated number one in Connecticut. You know how you go through these lists of the best whatever in every state? Well, this place was ranked number one in Connecticut. I say, I, I, I know that place. We've been there. Hey, and here comes John Sundet, yeah. big time supporter of the Pugcast. Hello, John. <laughs> anyway, uh, I'm C.R. Wiley. I'm a uh, pastor. I've been serving in the Pacific Northwest for the last few months, a uh, church there in Vancouver, Washington. But I'm actually now, as you know, in Connecticut with my old friends. It's been, uh, it's been, it's been really nice. Uh, it's sort of like, you know, when, you, when you've been away, you know, from your hometown for like 30 years. It kind of kind of feels like that to me. I'm like, wow, I, I did remember that. <laughs> I kind of like it here, <laughs> that kind of thing. Anyway, uh, and uh, I've got a book coming out on Tom Bombadil that should be out any time now because they have everything they need. And enough about me. Uh, and uh, Tom, Tom, why don't you tell us about yourself? Uh, Tom Price. I teach systematic. You want to leave that alone? Yep. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pushing my microphone right now. Um, I'm, I've been wrestling with it. <laughs> I just, uh, I, I'm just because because our text says don't touch, touch the, the table, the don't touch the microphone. <laughs> um, Tom Price, a systematic theologian, Christian ethicist. I teach uh, both at Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary and other places. All right, great. And uh, Glenn, Glenn, why don't you introduce yourself and then also tell us what we're talking about today because it's your day today. Yeah, I'm Glenn Sunshine. I'm a Professor Emeritus of History at Central Connecticut State University, Senior Fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview, and I run a ministry called Every Square Inch Ministries. And along with that, I have a book, I don't have a release date yet, but coming out from Canon Press again, uh, called Christians Who Change Their World. It's a series of short bios of people that you never heard of, <laughs> um, or that you may have heard of but didn't realize that they were Christians. So. Uh, that's cool. You know, you know, my book on Bombadil is coming out with Canon, and uh, the, the folks at Canon are great. They give you the best support that I've experienced when it comes to publishing. And I've published with like two or three other companies, and nothing. Uh, you know, it's you know what Canon does for an author. That, yep, we're good. Not, you know, is uh, light years ahead of what you get with some of the other yeah, guys. That, that's been my experience too. Canon did more to promote. Uh, slaying Leviathan than Zondervan did with the books I published with them or Westminster John Knox or whomever. Right, right. So. Yep. So anyway, thumbs up for Canon Press. <laughs> so what are we talking about today? Yeah, today I thought we would shift to the topic of um, guilds and craftsmanship. And this was inspired, well, actually, Chris, the inspiration came via you. Yeah, yeah. Our friend David Stocker down in Dallas, the architect down there who specializes in mansions, you know, building mansions for, for uh, folks. Um, got a, got a, a firm there that's pretty, pretty impressive. Anyway, he sent me an email and said, why don't you do something on guilds? And I said, let me talk to Glenn, because <laughs> he's the guy for that. Yeah. Um, when I was working on my doctorate, I did a, a pretty good amount with medieval economic history, and guilds are obviously a main topic there. And when we're talking about a guild, you know, the, the, there's a common mistake that people make about guilds. 
they'll, they'll tell you that a guild is a lot like a trade union. And that's really a mistake. Uh, the best way of thinking about a guild is it's a professional association, sort of like the AMA or the bar. You can't practice law unless you get the approval of the bar. You can't practice medicine unless you get the approval of the AMA. And if you're in a town with a guild, you can't practice whatever that guild covers without being a member of that guild. Now, that's an interesting way of con uh, connecting this to the modern world because I think when people learn about this, you know, they think, oh, monopoly, that's awful. You know, there's, there's, not, there's no uh, freedom, you know, to uh, maybe do things in new ways or, or what have you. But when you connect it to, you know, medicine and law, then it's sort of like, oh, would we want to live without an association that, you know, validates and, and credentializes lawyers and doctors? Yeah, and there's a very good reason why that existed in the Middle Ages the way it did. And, and that's simply because, well, different towns, each town had their own set of guilds. Guilds didn't cross towns. And not every craft was regulated by a guild. All crafts followed basically the same approach to, to training. But not all of them had guilds. And the, the guilds were really focused on those particular crafts that the town understood as being particularly important. So if the town was going to be exporting something, let's say Florence with wool, right. you would have a wool workers guild. You, well, you'd have a weavers guild at, the, right. at least because it was important to maintain the quality of right. the product when they were exporting it. So if, if a craft is, is important for the economy, important as an as right. um, export item, or if it's important for the life of the city in other ways, like the Butcher's Guild. Yeah. Uh, butcher's Guilds are always important guilds in medieval cities. Um, they're the ones who are legally entitled to kill animals and to sell what they get out of it. Now, we think of butchers in terms of meat, but when you think beyond that, where are the tanners going to get their hides? Yeah, right. Where are the fletchers, guys who put uh, the feathers on arrows, mm. where are they going to get their glue? Oh, nice. Yeah, that right, comes right. from the connective tissue of animals. Right, right. Um, you know, uh, the, your doublet maker needs horn for buttons, all of these kinds of things. Guess where they get them? Every one of them comes from the Butcher's Guild. So because the Butcher's Guild is critical to the overall economic life of the city, it's a craft guild. They have a guild for it. So this, there are a couple dimensions to this, again, that I think most modern people who are introduced to guilds sort of superficially wouldn't, wouldn't have made, you know, wouldn't have, wouldn't have known about. And so, you know, this whole matter of, yes, you want to make sure if your town is uh, like the... the the leading exporter of wool, as you noted, you want to make sure that the, the, the quality is consistent, craftsmanship is really good, because so much of that town's economy is going to be driven by that export. Yeah. Imagine if Italy's economy was driven by the export of automobiles. Right, right. Well, well... I think you kind of get the point. You, right, know, you, right. you, you need to maintain a higher level of quality control. Yeah. Now, the thing, of course, about an Italian car is it looks really good. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, a Maserati, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Well, if you're going on the high end, then, then there's, there's Fiat, which, as I understand it, stands for Fix It Again, Tony. Um, you know, so, um, okay, so the, the guilds are performing economic functions having to do with, with the city. Um, they, also, they also control production. I want to talk more about that later. But they, they also have other functions that people don't really recognize. So there are religious functions that guilds perform. Interesting. Everyone in the, <clears throat> excuse me, everyone in the guild 
is required to attend Mass on the feast day of the patron saint. Of that particular trade. Of that trade. particular trade, yeah, because every trade had a patron saint. Um, you know, there would be other kinds of religious activities that were done collectively by the guild. But the, st- stop, stop, stop. Mm-hmm. Have you ever thought of doing a book of fictitious guilds and their patron saints? <laughs> well, <laughs> a, 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 actually, if you go to the real patron saints, they they're can funny get enough, pretty, aren't pretty they? far out there. So, <laughs> for example, St. Claire of Assisi, um, when she was old, she was in, in a convent, and the other nuns were going to attend Mass at another location, uh, but she was old and frail and didn't want to go, so she stayed back. And when the nuns came back to tell her about all the wonderful things that happened at this, this service, Claire said, oh, I know, and proceeded to tell them all because she had seen Mass in a vision. And because of this, Claire is the patron saint of television. <laughs> I thought you were going to make this clairvoyance or something. No, 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 I, I, I'm not making that up. That is, in fact, true. She's the patron saint, saint of, of television. television. Ah. Wow. So, like, if I'm an, an actor or an actress in Hollywood, uh, so, and I'm a Catholic, uh, she's my patron saint? Uh, if you're working in television. Interesting. So there's a different one for film? It wouldn't. I don't know for sure, but I wouldn't doubt it. But yeah, is there like another one for like theater on Tuesday? Yeah. <laughs> this, well, is, this is where this is where we get kind of silly with yeah. you know as Protestants we look on and we, yeah. we, we well yeah, so um, along with the religious functions back to guilds uh, along with the religious functions they also perform social functions yeah, yeah. so. Um, they will meet together periodically for feasts, probably on the feast day, feast day of the patron saint. Right. Um, if, the, if a guild master dies, the guild takes care of the widow and the orphans. They see to it that the orphans get trained and so on. This makes tremendous sense. You know, so, yeah. so they look after their own. Yeah. Mm. Now, in terms of economic, now, let, let's go back to the economic things, which is what most people think of. The, the guilds also regulated, first of all, entry into the guild. There's a process that you follow, apprentice to journeyman to master. Right. And by um, the way, there's, that, that still exists in various trades to right. this day. Sure. Right. And, um, you know, there, there's significance to what's going on there. We'll talk about the lifestyle maybe later, you know, the, the life cycle that you go through as entering a guild. But the, the guilds regulated things like the rules of production. Mm-hmm. So... You could only have a certain number of apprentices. You could only have a certain number of journeymen. You could not steal journeymen from other people while they were working on their projects and so on. Um, So they're regulating that. They frequently regulate where you can do business. So all of them will be on one street, for example. That way they can keep an eye on each other, make sure nobody's cheating. But also if somebody starts producing the product in another part of town, they know it's illegal. Right, right. Okay. Um, they also regulate the quality of the product. So, for example, if you have a Chandler's Guild, candle makers, mm-hmm. um, they would regulate the amount of the, the weight of the candles that are produced. They would have to weigh a, a, a certain amount, and they would have to have a certain percentage of animal fat in them. Interesting. You know, all of those kinds of things. To, the goal being to guarantee the quality of the product, mm-hmm. both for the consumer and for export. Right to maintain the reputation of the guild and the city. The one thing that they don't do, and this again is one of these things people get all wrong, is they don't fix prices. Mm. Guilds were not allowed to regulate prices. They regulate the terms of production, they regulate the, the quality of the products, those kinds of things. 
but prices were allowed to float. Mm-hmm. This way, if one guild master was better than another, he could sell for more. Mm-hmm. If another one couldn't get the market, he might have to cut his prices. But all of that is is uh, perfectly acceptable as long as you're operating within the framework set up by the guild. Now, there are so many things about this that are appealing, you know, you know, just as you describe it. Obviously, there's a sense of, I know who I am, I belong, if I'm, I'm in a guild, I know where I am in the hierarchy of this order. Um, there are ways for us to care for each other. I mean, there are ways for us to fellowship with each other and celebrate together. Uh, there are even things that, you know, competitors have in common. You know, we're on the same street. Uh, we have the same patron saint. Um, you know, we're all part of the same church. Obviously, church or being a parish system as mm-hmm. opposed to, say, you know, just like today, you know, where everything is sort of driven by almost kind of consumerist approach to church life. Um, so a lot, a lot of this stuff is really appealing, and I, I, will you be getting to maybe some of the, the forces that caused the decline of the guilds it's, uh, in, in, your, in our time today? Because well, I'd like to reflect on this. Yeah, I, I, I'd like to get to that too, but I want to make one other point before we go forward. Sure. Um, that's the quality of the work that they did. Mm-hmm. You know, we sometimes, I mean, we're, we're stuck with medieval films that that basically say that that uh, the the clothing largely consisted of mud. Um, Too much money, Python. Yeah, it, it's, <laughs> you know, it, it's drab, it's undyed, and so on. And, well, this is really, even for peasants, this is far from the truth mm-hmm. um, in most of the Middle Ages. I mean, you can see this in illuminated manuscripts and things like that. Sure. Um, and particularly for people who had more money, clothing tended to be very brightly colored and all that kind of thing. And, and the fact is, the, medievals, the medieval craftsmen produced goods that were higher quality than the comparable goods we produce. I would agree with that. I was just over at Old Navy. Okay. Can I tell you some well, disposable clothes? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. you know, and, yeah. and, and there, there are issues involved here. But, but you run into things with wills where people's finery, their, their best clothes, yeah. are being handed down for three and four generations, and they're still considered to be high-quality clothing. Well, this the, gets... the wool wore like iron. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's the durability factor, but there's also a, a, a sort of the longevity of uh, basic, uh, you know, the designs... So let me make a comparison. So, like, there are certain products that mm-hmm. are iconic in our country, uh, and one of the reasons why they're iconic is because they don't change much. Right. So, like, wingtip yeah. shoes. Yeah. When you think about wingtip shoes, uh, you know, those are shoes that, you know, men wear and uh, to work or to church or to some other kind of formal event, and, uh, you know, they don't change too much from, you know, generation to generation. Like, yeah, it's like certain kind of conservative clothing. Yeah, you know, yeah. Like, like blue Oxford <laughs> shirts or some khaki pants for men. Yeah, yeah, something blue like jeans. that. Yeah, yeah, blue jeans. I, I think slight, slight I, variations, but not much. Mostly these days consisting of fading and ripping. Until the, <laughs> right. until the church got involved and it became skinny jeans. But anyway, that's right. Well, you know, like I, I, drive a, I, I drive a Jeep. I drive a, a Wrangler. The, it, it's uh, very much... You know, the design uh, is very much, uh, in, you know, sort of like clearly connected to the original, you know, Willie's Jeep in uh, World War II. You can right. see the yeah. family resemblance. There's not a whole lot of... Ch- uh, and, yeah. and, and, and because of that, you know, I bought a, I bought a Jeep, uh, two, that's 2012, I probably bought it for like t- 
maybe 27 to maybe 30,000. I bet you today it's still worth, and it's got over 100,000 miles on it, it's still worth about $20,000. Yeah, that, that, that worth, I mean, similar in, in uh, guitar work, uh, world. Think of electric guitars, mm-hmm. Les Paul, a standard yeah. Les Paul or a Fender Stratocaster. Still the two standard models that all the other models are trying to come up with either a variation of or their own uh, example of it. Um, and to have, uh, have a guitar that is connected in some way with that, the original. Like now, for example, Epiphone, a sister company to it's owned by Gibson, but it started out just making cheap knockoffs. Now it's, it's able to actually make guitars back in the U.S., use solid woods again. And now it's, it's as comparable to everything else. It's making originals, again, off the model of the old Gibsons. Nick. And, and they're, they're running as much. So you have this, um, this, uh, this standard pattern and quality that kind of mark didn't change so much. There were variations, but usually those are the ones that aren't worth as much, and they usually right. have just went out with fad. And then there are these, uh, you know, this is something you would hand down several generations because of its right. continued worth and right. value. A quick question, though, related back. What was the relationship? I mean, I, that, that's an important thing, the way in which clothes could be hand, handed down several things. But what's the relationship to families and being part of the guilds? In other words, oh, children yeah. <laughs> growing up and being brought yeah. into these... Yeah, different guilds have different statuses attached to them. Sure. There are major guilds, minor guilds, and so on. Right. If you are a member of a guild household, if, you, if I'm a guild master, I will probably apprentice my sons to a guild. Uh, it might be my own. It could be another. And the ideal is to get them into a more prestigious guild. Ah. Uh, so you, you don't necessarily have long lines of family. You, sometimes you do. Mm-hmm. But you don't necessarily have long lines of family in the same guild. It can happen. But, but, but this is something, again, that's a, a, a common sort of misconception. I right. think most people, when they think about these things, think, oh, I was born a cobbler's son, I'm going to be a cobbler. That wasn't the case. In other- That's not necessarily the case. It probably right. happens a pretty good amount. Sure. But the, the object would really be to try to, if you're a cobbler, the object would be to try to get your son into a more prestigious guild. So how would the, pres- the prestige of the guilds be uh, determined? I mean, how, how did that happen? Well, um, if you are, for example, a um, in Florence... You have a, uh, the Weaver's Guild. Florence was known for the export of wool and cloth. Right. Um, that guild is very wealthy, very prominent, very powerful right. because of their economic importance and because they actually grow, you know, they're, they're very wealthy. Yeah, so um, it's, it's so tied to the, to, the, it, to the significance and the wealth of that particular right. guild. Gotcha. Right. I'm all set for now. For now. Not for a moment. Okay. All right, now, so out there in yeah. podcast land, that should be a, a beautiful thing. We were interrupted to ask, do you want another beer? <laughs> right. Anyway, so. So, um, yeah, so in term, now fashion does change in the Middle Ages. Through the central Middle Ages, change was pretty slow. When you start getting to the 14th, 15th century, things are happening a lot faster. Fashions are coming and going. And the reason for that is the society is much wealthier. Huh. And as, as wealth comes, you start getting differentiations in fashion and things like that. Yeah. Before that, clothing evolved fairly slowly. Right. Now, the, the best example I can give you of, of medieval quality in terms of craftsmanship 
just put this in perspective, there's a set of, the blue set of the unicorn tapestries are located in the Cloisters Museum in Fort Tryon Park on the north end of Manhattan. I think, I, I think I've seen uh, photographs of you, you undoubtedly have seen photographs. Uh, think of a unicorn it, with a little fence around yeah. him in a tree, a blue background, lots of flowers. Got it. Okay, that is the final one of the unicorn tapestry. It tells the story of the hunt of the unicorn. Okay, now, I don't need to get into the story, which, by the way... We, we know it was successful because there are no more unicorns. Yeah, well, <laughs> it, the, the, the hunt itself is an allegory of Christ. Ah. Okay, so... Um, the, the unicorn, the, the serpent comes and poisons the water hmm. to kill all the beasts. The unicorn comes and dips its horn in the water to purify it and to cleanse it. Neat. The unicorn can only be caught by a virgin. Hmm. Um, hmm. The unicorn is hunted down, dies, but at the end of the series, he's resurrected under a pomegranate tree, which is a symbol of eternal life because of all the seeds. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, you know, the whole hey, thing hey, is a Christian allegory. Now, now you made this... So, getting back to the seeds, was that why we see pomegranates in the tabernacle? And in the Most temple? likely. Interesting. I hadn't, I'd never made that connection. Yeah. Now, during the, the... The unicorn tapestries were made in the 1400s, late 1400s. At some point, one of them got damaged. And in the early 1900s, they restored the tapestry. Oh, this is coming back to me. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah go ahead. And I, I think I may have told this story before. Yeah, yeah. You've got this, this deep blue background on all the tapestries. You walk into that room, and the bottom of one of the tapestries is brown. Mm. And the reason is because the, the modern dye originally matched the color. It was originally the blue, but the modern dye couldn't hold its color for 75 years. Yeah. The medieval dyes are over 500 years old, and they're going strong. You know, this is something that I run into again and again, and that is, you know, the, you know as C.S. Lewis noted, this bias for the modern, you know, the, the sort of the uh, chronological snobbery. Yeah. So many times, any, but, you know, people who actually, you know, have some exposure at a practical level to crafts yeah. know that the stuff in the past was better yeah. than what we have today. Right. And, and uh, the next show I'll actually be discussing the history that went into that kind of mindset to, for, to chronological snobbery. But that, that's, that is definitely something that continues to cloud I think the ignorance of history um, and and this um, presumption that we sit at the forefront or the climax so superior to everything in the past that the you know the things we go and buy today are are somewhat superior. Yeah, they're not. I mean, I, I, I you know I've been involved in building. I've done. Yeah. I've built things. I've built. You know, I've been. I was a contractor for a while, and uh, I've renovated homes, and. Everyone agrees, sort of the golden age of home building in the United States uh, is way in the past. The, we don't live in the golden age. We live in a bronze age. Or something. Yeah. <laughs> so the, gold, the golden age, just so people know, was probably between about the turn of the century, about 1900 and about 1925 or maybe 30. Now, when the Depression hits, you know, but what you had at that time was this marvelous confluence of just lots of guys who were really good with their hands, lots of craftsmen, mm -hmm. and 
industrial production. When these two things converge, you have the best homes that were ever built. Yeah. The house I grew up in was built around 1900. Mm -hmm. yeah. And when we did some renovation in there, we, the, the, we discovered that every, every stud, every joist, everything was toenailed in from multiple directions with huge nails. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And well, the, the, the house was built to withstand nuclear attack, which is pretty amazing <laughs> because nuclear weapons hadn't been invented. Right, yeah. right. <laughs> well, my, my second son uh, and my daughter-in-law bought a house uh, in this area, uh, in Vernon, and it was built in 1928. And uh, I had had my eye on that house for years. I drove down the street and I'd say, if that house ever comes on the market, I'm buying it. Anyway... It comes on the market, and my son and my daughter-in-law are in the market, and so I helped them buy the house. <laughs> so I was involved in the transaction. But anyway, when, my, when, when we were looking at the house on the inside, 1928, every window still functioning, no sagging on any part of the house, every door, every jam, you could just touch the door and it would just close, click. 1928, no binding, no swelling, yeah. nothing. Everything about the house is super solid. And when my, my, my son, um, I, he, he said, hey, Dad, what, what should I do in terms of, like, uh, you know, the, the contractor for my heating and uh, that kind of stuff and oil and stuff. So I, I made a recommendation. And so anyway, the, 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 speaking about craft guilds, it's the Gaudier family here. It's a big, big family here in this area. And uh, they own plumbing and heating companies and stuff like this. But anyways, one of the Gaudier boys, about the same age as my son, came to the house to, to you know, uh, make the, you know, the conjurer to, 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 to connect, you know, do the, do the deal to make a contract so that they would service the house. And he's talking to my son, who, by the way, is a welder and works as a fabricator for United Steel. Uh, he says to my son, I think my grandfather built this house. Hmm. And when my son was renovating the bathroom, he took the jam off the door, or the, took the jam off of the opening into the bathroom. Hmm. He saw the name, Gaudier. The man signed the house. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So we're, yeah. Yeah. Now, uh, all, all, all of this points to, actually, there's a, a really good article that just came out um, in um, the Imaginative Conservative called Craft Vocation and the Decline of the West by Matthew Feniger. And one of the things that he points out in here, this is where we're starting to get into some of the, the thinking behind this, aside from just the pragmatism. One of the things that he pointed out that I think is, is really worth noting is he connected this idea of craftsmanship and guilds to vocation. Mm. And vocation comes from the Latin word vocari, which means to call. So a vocation is a calling. Um, in the Catholic world, vocation usually means you're called to the priesthood because they typically don't think yeah. of calling in, in other senses. The guilds apparently had a bit of a different notion than that. Well, this is an interesting uh, new bit of news for me. Please continue. Yeah, well, evidently the guilds, the guilds saw the process by which you went from apprentice to journeyman to master as you're learning those skills progressively. Um, apparently they saw this as an allegory for the soul hmm. and the soul com uh, coming to... To God. Well, it's, it's interesting also because, yeah, they, they talked about the preparation for our beautific vision right. as an apprenticeship, discipleship as apprenticeship. Ah, yeah. yeah. So that yeah. language was very common. In yeah. The, and actually, the word disciple is a word for apprentice in Greek. Yeah. 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 Right. So, 
<laughs> they, they, they saw this very much in, in Catholic terms as the process of perfecting the soul. Yeah. It, it, it becomes an analogy or a metaphor for that. Um, and thus, your work in the medieval guilds was understood as being sacred. Uh, it's almost anticipating what Luther will be saying in much more explicitly, um, that the workbench is an altar. Yeah, right. Hmm. So, so, so what we're hearing here, what I'm hearing anyway, is there are some, uh, maybe there's some precursors to the priesthood of all believers or the vocations that, you know, the idea that, you know, in other words, this isn't completely original to Luther. Right. Um, and if you read Heiko Obermann, you'll know that uh, a lot of Luther really isn't original. Yeah, yeah. Um, Which he, actually is good news. It is good news, yes. Yeah. Um, because in theology, being original is usually a very bad thing. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that's right. Um, that's right. Yeah. So contemporary theology, by definition, yeah. is bad. Yeah. yeah. So, so um, but this idea of, of, um, of learning to master the craft as being an analogy of learning, if you will, to master life. Yeah. Um, the soul's journey to God, all of those kinds of things. We're embedded into this, which means that mastering your craft, becoming a true master of it, is at its best viewed as a sacred obligation mm -hmm. and sacred duty, actually. Mm -hmm. So that shoddy workmanship just could not be accepted. Yeah, right, right. And, and you have this, I mean, I know with, you know, the influence of Aquinas and others from the conversations that were going on a lot of, you know, during the time is they also realized that as something about our human natures are such that a part we have in our own creatureliness is taking the potential that we've been given as creatures and giving some kind of cultivating that to actualize ourselves as agents, not self-actualization. Right. We are actualized fundamentally by, by the gift of God. Um, but in the sense as we actually have a, a, an agency, we cultivate certain things that help us take, for example, our hands, discipline them in such a way that the potential there can be formed and fashioned in a way to actually it's, it's almost a form of creaturely advancing, if you will. If I take my hands and discipline it certain ways, I can begin to have control over, the, say, a guitar. I can play a scale. I can play a chord. I can begin to harmonize. I can then begin to do of, things. For that, those of you who can't see Tom while he's talking, <laughs> yeah, he's, he's actually doing all the I'm fingering. actually moving. My, <laughs> he, 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 Although I can't put a microphone together. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah, this, we, we were joking about this earlier. Yeah, we're talking about craft, and, and, and Tom is having a difficult time putting his microphone stand together. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> but, but, uh, but with a stringed instrument. Yeah, I, but, but Tom is a great guitarist. <laughs> um, but you, you have to develop that requires discipline um, it re requires not just discipline but following certain patterns and forms and and aiming towards certain kinds of ends and those things are not just kind of the um, throw yourself at something and then see what happens yeah right. let, let me just uh, I want to I want to riff on this a little bit using a little bit of the language of the guys who play guitars I want to riff on this a little bit <laughs> So I've got a couple of, of things that kind of bugged me over, over the years. One, one of those things is uh, the, our tendency in the modern church to create false dichotomies. Yeah. So I remember being a part of a, you know, a, 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 a mission, sort of annual mission trip to uh, an area that needed you know, help. And we were given this uh, sort of uh, false dichotomy. Yeah. And the false dichotomy was, 
we can minister to the people yeah. or we can focus on the, the work. Yeah, yeah. You get what I'm getting at? Yeah, yeah. So in other words, the work can be really shoddy, yeah. but if, if, if Mrs. Johnson feels loved, it's okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. You know, so what we end up with, with is, is producing crap and not yeah. caring. Yeah. And Mrs. Johnson stuck. No, yeah. she may have wonderful conversations with us during our yeah, time with that's her. Right, that's right. You know, <laughs> but 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 now, now that's a false dichotomy. Yeah. So I remember, I know I went on this mission trip for years, and I was given a task my first year, and I was really focused on doing a good job in a bathroom. Yeah. And I did that bathroom as best as I could. I went back year after year after year, and the bathroom that I worked on was still in good good repair. Good. Everything was solid. Everything was like a rock. Yeah. Because I cared about yeah. getting it right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> now, this is one of the things that Steve Jobs is known for, yeah. you know, with Apple. He wanted, yeah. he wanted what he was doing to be good in the places that no one looked. And, no. and, 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 you know, as an example of that, you can go to cathedrals in Europe now. And um, a friend of mine told me this happened in Augsburg. They were up in the, basically up in the attic. Uh, doing some repair work, and there were sculptures up on the top of the pillars in the attic that no one but God would see. Yeah, yep. They, 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 yeah. Th this again points to this idea of work being sacred. They put these things up just for God's pleasure. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's and, what we call integrity. Mm -hmm. And there's, you know, and, and again, related, um, but, but for, you know, the, the glory of God on one aspect, the, the, the sharing in this kind of rich, meaningful production. But then there is also this way in which um, there is this foretaste of the kind of elevated state we're going to have eternally in the sense that when I, for example, master certain skills for an instrument, I'll use that example again, and I begin to be able to play those things almost as if they are now first nature. Right. Or, you know, well, right. You know, yeah, well, the, the, when we think of the, t the term second nature. Say second nature right. becomes... So what ends up happening is, is there's a freedom and a kind of joyous freedom to participate in a level of human existence that I couldn't do before. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I can watch someone else do it, maybe be envious or maybe use that as a goal to, to, to arrive at. But then you watch somebody who just she can sheerly function with, with an instrument. With, with they're, they're so connected to it right. that stuff comes out of it, sounds and beauty and joy. You can just see that they're beautiful. There's beautiful things happening, right. and there's a freedom to actually participate in that. There's no other way of getting into that if you weren't crafted into it. Yeah, and and let, let's talk here a bit about the the process. Again, we see this interestingly enough in the medieval guild. Mm -hmm. So you would start off in a guild at about the age of six. You would come in and child labor laws. Yep. <laughs> you would you would you would come Ron in. Swanson was running the factory floor at eleven. I, yeah. If anybody's watched Parks and Recreation, you know what I was just talking about. If you don't watch that show, then just ignore what I just said. Okay. So the youngest apprentice's job was to do all the, the grunt work. He'd be the person who would put the tools away and organize the workshop for the next How day. How exploitive. He'd be the first person up in the morning to get the fires going so that the other people would be warm when they got up. How all exploitive. All of these kinds of things. Yeah, well... <laughs> 
And then he would assist the master in doing things. And the master Assistance? Would, the How ma degrading. <laughs> Are you quite through? <laughs> I think he's, he's quoting, quoting the karate kid. Right? Um, Go ahead, Glenn. I will not interrupt anymore. <laughs> yeah. So the master would teach the kid the rudiments, and then he would learn rudiments. more. Rudiments? <laughs> yeah, rude, yes. Um, and he, he, would, he would keep learning until he got to the point where he'd mastered all the basics. Master? And, well, no, he wasn't a master yet. But slavery. Yeah, well, and that, but, but then, well, we send kids to school. Yeah, for exactly yeah. the same reason. Sure. Yeah. I, and, I'm having a little fun, folks, out there. Yeah. yeah, yeah. As you know. So, <laughs> so th then they'd become a journeyman. And the journeyman was someone who, like I said, mastered the basics, but whose job was now to master the craft completely. Yeah. yeah. And the, the journeyman, again, this points to this idea of the, the, the voyage of the soul, as it were. Um, the, the journeyman would work for different masters. And the assumption is, you know, you'd go work with one master, then you'd move on and go to work with a different one and so on. The assumption being that no master can teach you everything you need to know. Interesting. Because you are different. You have a different personality. Yeah. Your skills are going to be different. All of those kinds of things. So by being exposed to multiple masters and learning multiple ways of doing things, you can develop your own approach and your own style, as it you, were. You are blowing my mind here. You're blowing my mind here, Glenn, because you have defied every sort of conventional wisdom that you can think of. This idea that, that medieval people actually understood what an individual is. Oh, yeah. And, like, like, and if you notice, just by way of small contrast, notice the difference between this emphasis versus, say, the kind of expressivist yes. notion. Expressivism almost says that, you know, I need to resist any kind of cultivation and yeah. formation yeah. in order to be free right. to, to basically to be a moron. Stamp, it, stamp it with my nothingness, <laughs> right? my, my, no, my no form. Right. Whereas here, what you have is the actual human is able to, to be recognized in their distinction and yet recognize also that that distinction doesn't eliminate the need for formation. It just widens the kind of formation that, that it, right. it requires to be able to reach its higher Right, and that's, and that's exactly the point. That's, you know, you talking about practicing your different skills and all that kind of thing, going to your teacher and so on. Your teacher's job is not to make you a clone of himself. Right, that's right. right. Um, but... The way they handled that in the Middle Ages is, again, just let, let them work with different people, develop their own, own style, their own skills, their own approach to it. And then to demonstrate that they'd actually mastered their craft, they had to produce something called a masterpiece. Yes, where yes. They, where they would, they would demonstrate that they could work at the necessary level to maintain the standards of the guild. You know, where the, you know what's fun is, is, is this still exists... Have you ever heard of the uh, Master Penman? This uh, this sort of very exclusive community of of men, generally men, although there may be women who are part of it, who uh, are are Master Penmen who can do things with not just calligraphy, but just in terms of a full range of use of the pen. That's just remarkable in, in terms of not only mastery of, of 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 sort of laying ink on whatever you know paper, vellum, whatever they're working with, but also just the range. And so, so I think the most, um, well, there is, there's actually, I think, a YouTube video. Uh, if you do a, a search for the master penman, 
you may come across this, hmm. but uh, it's a mar- so this guy who's like the world's you know uh, you know authority on you know who is the master penman, the youngest master penman. Uh, maybe he's about thirty years old, but all the other guys who are master penmen are in there like. 50s, 60s, 70s now. So he's like sort of like the beginning of a new birth. And there's been a lot of sort of, you know, going on and reviving this. So in this world that we live in today where all you need to do is, you know, punch a bunch of buttons and get all these different fonts and all this different stuff, you know, digital stuff, uh, we have a revival of penmanship. Hmm. A revival of penmanship at a very high level. And it's marvelous to see, but in a video that I'm thinking about, it, it totally reflects what you just described, Glenn, because he said my, my task, sort of my, my, uh, my final task before I became a master penman was to produce my masterpiece. Right. I, I had a student, um, really interesting student. She was in her 80s, maybe 90s, who was told by her parents, girls don't get education, and so she never went to college, and she went back like I said, at least in her 80s, she went back to get her degree. Nice. And ultimately got a master's as well. Nice. Um, mm. And she told me that her grandfather was a tailor. Huh. And as a tailor in the old country, he was required to make a suit of clothing for himself out of black fabric and sew it with white thread. Hmm. Then he had to wear that suit every day at work. Interesting. So this is a demonstration of his ability to work with, we, you know, the sewing because right. you, because you can see that white line. Right. Right? And so you would know when you walked in, you could look at a tailor and instantly know whether he knew what he was doing. Yeah, that's mm. great. That's that, great. That's yeah. a masterpiece. Right. Yeah. Right. And you better make sure that you get it right. <laughs> yeah. You're wearing your work every day. <laughs> that's great. That's great. Yeah. So. Um, Anyway, I, I, there's a quote in, in the article I mentioned before on craft vocation and the decline of the West. His argument is that the move toward mass production, efficiency, and all of that has utterly destroyed craft, utterly destroyed the value of skill, and so on. And he has a quote from a, a person that I admire a great deal. His name is uh, Bill Watterson. Oh, yeah, yeah, right, right, right. Yeah, Um, Calvin and Hobbes. Hobbes. Right, right. The the quote is, we don't value craftsmanship anymore. All we value is ruthless efficiency. And I say, we deny our own humanity that way. Without appreciation for grace and beauty, there's no pleasure in creating things and no pleasure in having them. You know, and I think anybody who's kind of paid any attention to the world of comics, you know, think about this. Calvin and Hobbes is, I think, the greatest comic strip Ever, I don't, and it's it's just as fresh today as it was when it was coming out in the '80s and the '90s. Every every day, yeah. So he was a craftsman in yeah. something that most people would just sort of think of as ephemeral. I mean, can you think of anything more ephemeral than a daily comic strip? Well, let, let me add another one. If you actually look at the far side, oh, yeah, that's another yeah. good one. Um, you know, it looks like it's kind of crude and all of that. But if you've seen Gary Larson's drawings of animals, for example, the man was brilliant at incredibly detailed and accurate depictions of the real world. Mm. He was, so he he was had, doing the crude on purpose. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he, he, he had all of the skills he would need to do hyperrealism. Right. But 
for the purposes of his comic, he didn't need that and didn't want it. Well, in, in fact, it would have worked I- entirely against the whole... Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he didn't need it and he didn't want it. Right, right, right. right, right. So. Yeah. But that's a, that's a neat thing. I, you know, when, it, when we think about Calvin and Hobbes, there's so many things. We ought to do a show just on Calvin and Hobbes. <laughs> but, uh, you know, there were so many ways that, you know, Bill told, you know, sort of revealed to us his depth mm-hmm. with the, the strip. Just in the naming of the characters, it was hilarious because each, the, these two characters, Calvin and House, were the inversion of the real historical figures that the names were der- derived from. Yep. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> Although I think Calvin does display total depravity. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Anyway, yeah. I mean, what, but, you know, what do we associate, you know, Calvin with the, the historical Calvin is with a with a pretty uh, rigorous. Uh, you know, sort of a doctrine of law for one thing. You know, obviously that's not all of it. But Strict, austere. Right, yeah. right. So at controlled. least that's the popular I, I sort yeah. of yeah, understanding of it. You would know better. But but I think that that's certainly not what we see in Calvin and Calvin and Hobbes. And then Hobbes, you know, was a <laughs> materialist and yeah. just a sort of life, you know, when he talks about, you know, light, you know, in nature being, you know, poor, solitary, brutish, and short. You know, that's not Hobbes in no. yeah. Calvin and Hobbes. No. He's lighthearted and never takes anything too seriously. <laughs> yeah. Well, and they, well, it, it's interesting just the pick of the two because you, you're dealing with stereotypes uh, that people would associate both with different kinds of determinists. Right, 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 right. Yeah. So, so anyway, this, that's fun stuff. Go ahead, Glenn. Yep. I, uh, I actually, at one point, when I was trying to explain the culture of the Huns to my students, I said they were the perfect Hobbesian men, nasty, <laughs> brutish, and short. <laughs> uh, that's good. Um, now, get, getting back to the guilds yep. now. Now, as I think about the guilds, uh, I find you know, your, your account very appealing. In other words, there's something about the, you know, the life that uh, a guildsman uh, in, you know, participated in that from a modern perspective, has a lot going for it. Now, what went on, uh, what, what, what brought about the demise of the, now, you know, the first thing that comes to mind is the Industrial Revolution, but I think it was already well along, yeah. you know, already, it, it, by the time the Industrial Revolution comes along, the guilds are already in the, in the rear yeah. view mirror. I, I, I think what, what you see, there's actually a movement called proto-industrialization, where you start seeing the guild system beginning to break down. Um, and that, that's already starting in the 17th century. Okay. Um, in, in some areas. So, for example... So, Henry in, Ford did not invent the assembly line. <laughs> no, we're, 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 we're discovering no, all kinds of things in the day. Sure. Well, actually, you know, uh, uh, Josiah Wedgwood uh, created an assembly line system for creating pottery. Interesting. In, in the Industrial Revolution. They couldn't mechanize that, but he developed a more efficient, note the word efficient, yeah. system of production by setting up an assembly line. Right. Um, in Switzerland, you had people making the components for watches as cottage industries that were then gathered together and brought to a location where a bunch of people then assembled them. Right, right. You know I mean? So this, this is proto-industrialization at work. Um, I think, though, that, that the place you, you to start looking for this is in the increasing prosperity in society. Hmm. The odd thing is that as society gets more prosperous, you need more goods to fill the demand. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the demand for more goods means that the old guild system can't supply them fast enough. Yeah, right, right. And as a result, they start looking for more efficient ways of production 
to get to meet the demand of, of goods that for the um, the emerging middle class and things like that. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is the thing that moves us away from the guilds and toward modern systems of production. That's what fuels the Industrial Revolution. Uh, it fuels uh, assembly line uh, manufacturing and those kinds of things. And interestingly enough, one of the earliest and strongest critiques of this comes from a guy by the name of Karl Marx. Uh-huh. Now, of the Marxes out there, I actually prefer Groucho. Yeah, that's right. But, right, right, but right. Karl... <laughs> Um, Carl makes the point that industrial production is intrinsically alienating. Yeah. yeah. The old yeah. craftsmen had the satisfaction of producing something from beginning to end, and at the end of the day, he held something in his hands that he had made. Now, now let's stop here and just think about this yeah. a little bit. I think uh, my problem uh, isn't with Marx and that insight. My yeah. problem is that he more or less acquiesces to the process, maybe right. because I, he feels like it's inevitable. Right. Now, under, understand, I am not a fan of Marx. Sure, sure. Uh, Groucho, yes. Yeah, Carl, sure. no. <laughs> but but um, he analyzed the problem, or at least one of the problems. He got the analysis right. Yeah. yeah. At least up to a point. Sure. Anybody, and, anybody who's worked for a corporation of any kind knows what you're talking about. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and it doesn't have to be manufa- a line manufacturing. Right. It's living in Cubeville. Sure, sure. I mean, any, any of these things where you become, what's the metaphor? You become a cog in the machine. Right. I, everybody I've known, it, the people who are sort of really enthusiastic about getting into corporate America have not had any experience in corporate America. And the, mm. all you need is about five years and all of your illusions have been dissed. <laughs> you are disillusioned at that point and you want out. But then you're trapped and you can't get out because maybe you got mortgages to pay or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And along with this, by the way, let, let's move in a bit of a different direction, one that's, that's closer to me. What about standardized education? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Rather than education that's geared around the student's interests and abilities that might lead them to a productive work as an electrician, plumber, carpenter, or whatever, sure, sure. we've got to give them all exactly the same education right. without any understanding of why we're doing it, what the purpose of it is. Uh, it's really to produce good drones to work in corporate America. Well, that's it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Dewey and all of his... Dewey was very clear about yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And people actually in, you know, the world of education think that Dewey is some kind of saint. He is probably the, the furthest thing you could imagine from that. But anyway, um, are, you, are you familiar with John Ruskin? Yeah, I'm going to get... Uh, let me see here. I'll, I'll be ready when you get back. Deal. Okay, so remember... Have you, are you familiar with John Ruskin? Yeah. Because uh, he's yeah. sort of an anomalous case. Right. Can you can talk a little bit about him? R- R- Ruskin, I, I'm, I'm not as familiar with Ruskin as I would like to be. But Ruskin was really rebelling against a lot of this. Oh, yeah. And one of his, one of his major emphases was beauty. Yes. The, the importance and centrality yeah. of beauty. Um, if I remember right, one of his quotes was, All great art is praise. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I don't remember that quote, but I, I think it's easy to, to uh, attribute to him. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, so Ruskin would be someone, actually, there are a number of these. I mean, we can look at William Blake for all of his faults. Yeah, yeah. And, and there are a number of others in this period who were, you know, in the Romantic era is really yeah. what we're looking at. Right. Uh, romanticism, for all its faults, yeah. was really a reaction against the stresses brought into European life yeah. by the French Revolution and the Industrial Revolution. Mm. Um, yeah. And with that, scientism, mm-hmm. the growth of scientism. Yeah. Yep. And 
there are good things to react against in all these things. They didn't always react in good ways. Right. Yeah, and they, right. they kind of cut threads that hurt later. Right. And right. that was really one of the... It, again, I, th- I always think of it as if, if you take something that was... Think of something held together well, though it had its, its frictions, the medieval world. When that starts to get, especially with the Enlightenment, it starts to get um, cracked and a new synthesis is trying to emerge, and that first new synthesis is one that really leaves out so many significant things, the reaction was the romanticism to say, wait a minute, we not only leave them out, but this is what's at the heart of everything. So what they end up doing is overcompensating and then creating what, what, what I consider to be probably the biggest battle that we are currently confronting right, is the right. outgrowth of the inability of those two polarities to synthesize properly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, when I think about, you know, I'm going to do the uh, counter, uh, That's all right. I'll have a counterweight. Counterweight, Yep. So, like, when I think of Ruskin, you know, I think of, the, of, a, of a man who was really behind the sort of the crafts, you know, mm-hmm. movement right. in the later part of the 19th, early 20th century. Arts and crafts. Yep, stuff, yep. yep. Yeah. So, a lot of the stuff that was really, you know, he was trying, as I, can, as, you know, as I, as I take, my take on him is that he was trying to take the best of the Industrial Revolution, right, and which is sort of the democratization of goods and sort of making sure that many people can enjoy good things. But uh, he wanted to infuse those things. He wanted to make sure those things were, were beautiful and that they reflected genuine sort of uh, genius, uh, not manufactured sort of uh, pseudo-genius, if you get my point. You know, later on you get like the Art Deco people and all that kind of stuff. And then you got today where people compose music according to some kind of algorithm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that's why everything today sounds so much the same. And why, why you know, today's music, as far as I can tell, yeah. uh, you know, is just entirely formulaic. It's almost like the 70s were kind of like, again, one of these moments in time yeah. where you had enough classically trained musicians who were trying to do the popular rock thing yeah. that you had this coming together of the popular... And the, you know, the the the, the, the classical or the, the elite. Yeah, yeah, and it's well, it's interesting. You think of the implosion of of different kinds. Of, we've talked about this before. Different kinds of rock music that came out. Yeah, there's an expressivist, romantic side to a lot of it. But a lot of it was they, they, these people understood kind of core folk traditions, which carry yeah, kind yeah. of a, cla- a, cla- a root, right. classic, uh, something you have to continue on and be cultivated in. And then they took them in a lot of different directions. But you had this huge variety of different sounds. I mean, you didn't have, I mean, each band would kind of, you could hear, you know, maybe the birds, you could hear a little bit of the Beatles, but then they'd be mixing it with Dylan and you'd get this whole new sound. So you, you had a bulk of creativity that didn't become formulaic and pressed into this this one right. boring repetitious pattern that is heard in in all these different uh, reiterations of the same thing. And yeah. again, you know, even if you have some prob you know problematic ideas in these creative bursts, you can see something very different. There is a handing on um, a certain tradition that allows for this variety and this this. Um, this creativity, I think, in the healthy sense of the word, that you just you can't, you know, right, right. You, you just can't find once it becomes patterned down to this this formula. But you know, an, an interesting thing here, you were just talking about Marx and the way in which he saw this. 
But it's interesting comparing Ruskin with Marx on this because, like you said, Marx ends up kind of almost caving into the, the, the force and the process, you know, grinding his teeth, where Ruskin says, wait a minute, there is a, a proper way to order these things that can actually uh, recapture at a different point in time with different conditions a lot of what's going on here, and that is right. the transcendentals, which, which Marx just saw as, as distractions and delusions. Right, right. because for right. Marx, everything really boiled down to economics. Right, yeah. right. Who, who owns, who produces, who benefits. Yeah, and I, th I think that what you see with Marx is uh, some inconsistency in this area. You know, I, obviously, thank you. Obviously, with Marx, you know, you've got almost a kind of prophetic voice in the sense that, um, you know, he's calling for something. You know, he's not calling for God to judge. He's calling for the working class to judge. Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. he's 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 uh, he's behaving in in a, in a in a way that you can't really reconcile with his own philosophy. And but I, I think that that's kind of uh, well, we, we, you know, there are, there's there's been a lot of folks who've talked about kind of the romance of you know atheistic humanism. Well, yeah, it was interesting. I was just watching. I don't know if any of you've seen the actual filming of Stalin's funeral. It's like no. an hour and 58 minutes long wow. of all the different places that are watching the moment that they're having his funeral. Huh. And this is this is real footage and what's interesting is it became known as the cult basically the cult of of, I'm sorry. It's yeah, the cult of Stalin. It's, it's, yeah. it was Stalin. So that's the name of the film. Um, I'll have to I'll have to get the title, but I thought of something. I thought of something called just the funeral. Okay. But it's about um, Stalin's funeral. But anyway, you have this. I mean, everybody's face is just expressionless. Everyone's. Yeah, they, Every, they, they, they've worked really hard at that in the Soviet at, Union. <laughs> and but what is interesting, then you'll have some people tearing up, especially mi uh, uh, um, military figures. Right. as they go by the body, and they just line up, I mean, crowds and crowds and crowds, and then they're just listening to these different, almost, oh, they're over the radio, a, a radio loudspeaker, these different things. We just, and it's all cult. This is our hero. He lives immortal. I mean, there's this, all this stuff about yeah. basically turning him almost into a Christ figure, yeah. and everything is that he, he gave us the dignity of brotherhood and and uh, these ideals that are, have united humanity. I mean, just all this... All this BS. All this BS. <laughs> but, and it's just stunning. But you say, you say, what is its beauty element? Okay, well, most of it, in this case, if you were going to have any aesthetic to the event, is just that it's following any cultic cultural pattern of, of kind of a, a unity around something. Yeah. Um, but you think of whatever its emblems of beauty. It's not cathedrals. Um, it's, it, you know, okay, it, it may be certain buildings, but it was their train system, <laughs> really. Well, you think about, you know, when, we, when I was a kid in the, in the 70s yeah. and 80s, when, we, when you thought Moscow, you thought, you, know, you thought about the Kremlin, what's the image that comes to mind? It's actually an Orthodox church. church. That's it's right. an Orthodox church. Orthodox church. Which, yeah, they, they interested They could not have produced that. No, no, they couldn't. They couldn't, in which I think it was the later, the later, um, the, the administration that comes in later who basically denounced this kind of hyper um, religiosity that grew around Stalin, and they understood it as very inconsistent with, with real Marx and Engels and Lenin. Yeah. But it's just fascinating that you, you have this, um, this human need yeah. to immortalize yeah, yeah. this... Um, contingent figure that they they this otherwise very would, would ugly, see. violent man. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Anyway, let's let's go back to you, Glenn. You were kind of getting into the, the to the sort of the 
the landing phase of the of the show. How do you, how do you want us to land on this? Well, I think there are a couple of things that are worth considering. One of them is the impact of consumerism hmm. on the kinds of things we're talking about. Yeah. You know, in a consumer culture that depends very much on mass production, mm-hmm. that depends very much on manufactured needs, yeah. manufactured solutions, manufactured appetites, yeah. and so on. Yeah. How do you recover the kind of independence of thought that it's, that's really necessary to appreciate craftsmanship, beauty, to value skill? How do you teach children that, yeah, you know what? You're going to get bored with your guitar lessons, but sooner or later you will genuinely be glad you put through the work even when you didn't want to because that will give you freedom that you can't imagine now. Yep, yep. How how do you teach kids that? And and like I said, how do you adjust the values away from a mass consumption society? And when you have the global consumerism, you have the pressure to basically not be able to make it further than your own doorstep. In other words, you're crushed in trying to take, take these matters into your own hands. If you want to actually produce something of beauty and, and uh, with depth or anything else, the, the, the pressures to limit you from any advance are huge. So you're, you're hit by two things. People that are formed into this consumer mentality to where there's no very little appreciation for it, much less um, avenues to push people more into it. But then they shut the door on it mm. so that you can't really advance other than, you know, making yourself a good knife. Well, well, think, well think about, it, it, you know, if you consider what, what would a craftsman be today? If, you know, if you think of, when you think of a craftsman or an artisan, right. what comes to mind? Chances are it's a guy in a little wood shop at home or something like that who is either doing it as a hobby or if he's doing it to make a living is barely making a living. Or or he's doing the high end. Now that's what I've seen. Or he's doing the very high end. So so like, for example, uh, there's a guy um, that I've, uh, John Neiman, uh, who's over in Eastern Europe. He's got a global following. He's a a blacksmith Mm. and he specializes in axes and chisels. And the waiting, the waiting list for any of his stuff is like six months to a year. I know because I waited six months for a, an axe. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. it's, it was an expensive axe. But I have a John Neiman axe. And uh, when you, uh, you know, do a little research on him, he's got millions of people that follow him all over the world mm. yeah. because he is like the living epitome of a medieval yeah. you know, craftsman. You, see, you still see this in luthiers. I mean, you have, up, even up in New England, you have mm. handcrafted, beautiful instruments. But you're right. waiting a very long yep. time. Yep. And I guess that's one of the things, is this isn't going to be mass-produced, and what you get is, is worth the wait. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Anyway, we should, we should bring this in for a landing here. So um, anything you want to tell us as we wrap up here? Something that maybe you've... You said, I, I got to get this in, but I, I didn't see how I was going to fit it in in the conversation to this well, point. Well, I managed to shoehorn most of the, the, the <laughs> trivial points that I wanted to get in into this, so I'm good. Yeah, this was a great show. I uh, I really enjoyed the conversation, the subject matter. Anything you want to say, Tom, as we wrap up? No, great, great uh, show. I mean, I have a lot of ideas kind of follow-up uh, for things, especially right. in the realm of craft, craftsmanship, and, and uh, art. 
Right, right. Artisanal burger. <laughs> well, thank you very much for listening to the Theology Podcast. We appreciate your uh, interest, uh, listening. You made it all the way to the end of the show. We give you a gold star to put on your forehead. <laughs> And uh, would you give us a gold star? That would be a nice thing. Uh, we uh, continue to get good ratings and different platforms, and we're glad for that. And um, uh, we also are very glad that people support us financially. There are people who give to us on a regular basis, and those gifts go to make the show possible. You know, uh, there actually is, you know, uh, you know, stuff that we have to pay for. <laughs> and uh, so we're glad for that. Anyway... Um, I guess the last thing to say is we are uh, working toward uh, our big, you know, tour of the Pacific Northwest, and that's coming together. So, anyway, uh, just you know, stay uh, stay uh, in touch with us, and you'll learn more about all that when it, when we're ready to share. Anyway, that's it for now. Thanks a lot for listening to the Theology Podcast. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye now.